Well, good morning and welcome to Epic. My name is Tim Jones. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Today, we are in part two of our message series called He Will Be Called. And in this message series, we are looking at four names that God gave in advance so that we would know exactly who his son was when he came by giving him the names Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, last week, we learned the importance of names. Uh, We especially learned that the meaning of names are very important, but how they sound as well, uh, because when we go to name our children, it's important we sound those things out. I mean, you might regret them like Anita Mann. Uh, Not good if you are trying to meet a man. Who are you? Anita Mann, uh, that's not good on a first date. <laughs> or also, uh, last week we looked at Eileen Wright. Uh, she's just going to get a no for working for that other party. Uh, there's no way uh, she's going to come work for us. <laughs> and, or there was Helen Back. Poor Helen, okay? Um, if you are a Helen, please don't ever marry a man with the last name of Back. We had way too much fun last week uh, with our Helen Back jokes last week. So anyways, you can see why names are important. Uh, Hopefully you don't have one of those names. But anyways, um, today we're going to look at these four names and they were given to Jesus uh, before he was born almost 700 years by a man who spoke them uh, he was a man of God. He was a guy who spoke on the behalf of God, and his name was Isaiah. And um, he spoke them into a time that there was darkness, where there was no hope. Um, Assyria had just conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and Israel was divided into two kingdoms at the time. They had been for a while, and they came in, and they conquered the northern kingdom, and then they went down to surround the kingdom of Judah. And King Ahaz of Judah would not turn to God. He would not listen uh, to God. He would not do what God wanted him to do. And so at that point, the people were hopeless. And it's in the midst of this hopelessness, in this midst of darkness, uh, that Isaiah gave this message of hope from God. And uh, it was a promise that God himself would come and be king and rule in such a way that everyone, that everyone uh, would never be let down. And so he declared this. He said, for those who live in a land of deep darkness, especially those around the Sea of Galilee, uh, where the northern kingdom had been destroyed, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. And here's our key verse for this series. Uh, verse six, chapter nine, verse six. For a child is born to us. A what? A child, hope through a child. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called, and let's say these four names together out loud all together, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And his government and its peace will never end. And he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. 
The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So last week we saw how Jesus uh, came in the midst of darkness to bring hope to everyone. And they turned to the wonderful counselor and we can also turn to the wonderful counselor as well because Jesus, we can always turn to him. He will always listen to us. He will always point us in the right direction. So if you missed last week, I highly recommend you check it out on our podcast. Now today we are going to focus on the second name, the second uh, title that was given to Jesus of Mighty God. And if you uh, would like a definition, Mighty God kind of speaks to the unlimited power of God that comes from God. Uh, he is in control of all things. And I think Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen sums up this power that we're going to talk about today. Um, it says, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, when we hear that, honestly, there's some of us who are a little hesitant of thinking that God is mighty. You know, is God really all powerful? Is God really in control? And if you think that way, well, you're not the only one. There are many people, especially in uh, the time of the nation of Israel, uh, who had just seen their land destroyed. Almost 700 years prior to Jesus being born, uh, the Assyrians had come in and conquered the northern part around the Sea of Galilee, and their land had been destroyed. They had no one to turn to. They had no one who would listen to them, no one to point them in the right direction, and they were hopeless. And so how could a child, how could a child bring hope uh, that God predicted that would come, that Isaiah would say that would come, and change anything? Now, we get that. I mean, we all have our how questions of God as well. You know, how is God going to uh, show up in the midst of my darkness? How is God going to help me in my finances and pay for rent? Or uh, how am I going to get the job that I need? Or God, how are you going to help me in my marriage? How are you going to help me to raise these kids on my own? God, how are you going to help me in my depression? Or how are you going to help me to be healed in my brokenness? God, where are you? And how are you mighty in my details? And so, God, what are you going to do? And how can a child who was born almost over 2,000 years ago help me and bring hope into my world? Now, those are great questions. Those are questions that need to be answered. Those are questions that need some power in the midst of those questions. Now, Sarah and I, we had some of those same questions uh, as we started to try to have children. We thought that would be easy, and it wasn't. After two miscarriages and a major surgery, uh, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to have children or not. And then God brought us Audrey. And when we had Audrey, um, I was just amazed with the amount of details of my little girl. I mean, I just remember her holding my finger, and I couldn't imagine or couldn't believe the amount of details in her fingers and her fingernail. I couldn't imagine or believe the amount of details in her eyes and in her eyelashes. And it just blew me away uh, just how she would smile when she heard me spoke. And I was just fascinated in all the ways that she was alive in her breathing and in her movements and also in just her 
her little personality. And it just started, I just started to say, how can this happen? You know, who could do this? And it wasn't until I was up close and in person that I really thought, who could do this? Who could do this? And so I don't know where you're at, but maybe you're in a season of darkness and you don't know that God can be mighty in those seasons as well. And so today, what I want to do is I want us to get up close and personal to the one who claims to be mighty. Today, I want us to look at the details to see if God can really answer our how questions about his might. And so if you would, turn with me to John chapter 5, verse 2 in your Bibles or your smartphone devices. Um, If you're new with us, always feel free to have one of the Bibles from the back as our gift to you. And in fact, uh, this Christmas season, if you know someone who like needs a Bible and and you would like to give that as part of a gift, uh, please take one of the Bibles, give it to us. We would be honored. uh, It would be a privilege to be able to help you out in that way. Now we'll be putting up the verses on the screen as well, but go ahead and turn to uh, John 5, 2, and I'll give you a moment to get there. Now, before we begin, let me give you a little bit of background. Let me tell you about John, who wrote this account, because it's very important. Just like Matthew uh, from last week, John was someone who was an eyewitness and followed Jesus. And so John saw all these things that started in Galilee uh, as Jesus began his ministry at age 30. Um, And Isaiah had predicted some 700 years prior that there would be a great light that would come in the midst of darkness, in the midst of hopelessness, uh, that something amazing would happen and that this child would come. And so Jesus begins his ministry in that area where there was no hope. And he begins to preach and teach about God. And he also starts to do all these amazing miracles. He starts healing those who are sick and had diseases and people couldn't believe it. And news started to spread and momentum started to gain. And John witnessed all these things. He saw them for himself. And one thing that we really need to know about John is that John was the closest person to Jesus. Okay. Out of the 12 who followed Jesus, that Jesus said, Hey, come follow me, be my tight knit circle. He was the closest of all of them. So if there was a person who knew Jesus very well, it was John. If there was a person who was up close and personal with Jesus, it was John. And so as momentum started to gain uh, in Jesus' popularity around in the Sea of Galilee, um, the religious leaders of the day were camped out in the south in the capital city of Jerusalem, and they wanted to know what was going on. And so they would send people to investigate. And at one point, um, these spies uh, witnessed this paralyzed man that was brought before Jesus. uh, And everybody thought he was going to heal uh, this guy, but he does something else at first. So let's see what he does. He says to this paralyzed man, he says, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your map and go home. And immediately everyone watched. 
And the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. And so these spies, they were shocked. And they returned to Jerusalem, and they report about all the amazing things, miraculous things that they had seen. And they report especially that Jesus claimed to be God and that he had the power to forgive sins. So this put the religious leaders of the, the day on red alert. Okay, this and John, he saw all these things and he saw so much more. And he wrote down in his account all these interactions that Jesus had, especially with the religious leaders of the day. And so today we're going to check out three specific interactions that Jesus had as he would make his way from the north at times to Jerusalem for celebrations, but more specifically to take on the religious leaders of the day who had the power and who were in control. And so that's where we're picking up today. So let's look at this first interaction that Jesus had, and it was early on in the ministry of Jesus, and it was on uh, their home turf. So starting in John chapter 5, verse 2, inside the city near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethsaida with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. And the reason these people had gathered is because it was near a holiday, most likely the beginning uh, part of the year, the new year. And there was a superstition that uh, there was an angel that would come by and stir the waters of this pool. And if you saw that happen, if you were the first one to jump in, you would be healed. And so... Interesting. But verse 5, one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man was healed. And I'm sure the crowd at that time saw this happen and said, who can do this? I mean, who can do this? And so he, the man, rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. And that's the day of the week that was supposed to be used for rest and and for God. But at that time, in that day and age, the Pharisees had made it, or the religious leaders had made it, um, the day that they used to exercise their power over the people. And so the Jewish leaders objected. What did they object to? They objected to a man being healed Yes, because it threatened their power. And they didn't want Jesus taking away control of the people. And so they objected. They came to Jesus and they said, hey, you're on our home turf. So in verse 17, this is what Jesus said back to them. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. Now they probably thought to themselves, did Jesus just say that he was equal to God? Yes, he did. Now, how so? Um, Jesus' miracle, what he did instantly, is what the Father is always doing slowly, okay? Jesus is, says that his Father is always working. So the Father is always taking care of the earth. The Father is always providing water for the earth. The Father is always providing food. The Father is always providing healing when we rest. The Father is always working seven days a week. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I am instantly healing this man because I am doing exactly what the Father does, And it infuriated them. 
That answer infuriated them. Jesus records, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. Now, isn't it interesting that the religious leaders would get all worked up, ignore the fact that this lame man who had been lame for 38 years was healed. So they were so focused on how things were supposed to be under their control that they missed out in what was right in front of them. Now, you know, we do the same thing. I mean, in the seasons of our darkness, we get so laser locked on the one thing that's going wrong instead of focusing on all the little things that are going right in our lives. This is one of my biggest issues. I mean, I know when something goes wrong, that I start to ask all my how questions, you know, like, God, how did this happen? How could it have happened differently? You know, God, how am I going to resolve this? And I get so focused on the how questions instead of looking at all the little things that are going right. And I wonder, I wonder if our perception of God would be different if we counted up all those little things instead and see how he was working instead of getting so focused on the one big thing that's not going right in our lives. I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine if we counted up all the little things that were going right instead of the one thing that wasn't going wrong? Some of us wonder, would we see God? And we would, we would see him in all the little things that's going on. We would see how mighty he is. And that's, if you're taking notes today, that's the first thing that I want us to really wrestle with in this thing of how does God work uh, and how do we see his might. And so if you're taking notes, the first one is Jesus' power is seen in all the details of our lives. Jesus' power is seen in all the details of our lives. And that's something that we need to reflect on and see for ourselves. Now let's continue with the second encounter uh, that happened uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees that John saw up close and personal and in the details. So picking up in John 8, verse 4, Teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, but it also says to stone the man. But yet they didn't bring the man because they were so used to just uh, manipulating and uh, bending the law for their own means. And so they say to Jesus, what do you say, Jesus? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him and in front of this very large crowd in, in Jerusalem, where so many people came on so many of these required holidays. And so, because if he agreed with them, to stone her, then it would appear that Jesus was heartless and that those who were so far from God would all of a sudden, he would lose influence with them. Now, if he uh, disagreed with them and he said, you know, that it was wrong, it would appear that he was breaking the law because they had misused it. And all of a sudden, he could be arrested by them. And Jesus does something very interesting that only Jesus could do. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned 
throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, the reason they left is that Jesus knew their heart. He knew their heart. He had the power to see their inner motives and that they were trying to pretty much um, bring him down by misusing the law, by misusing the law. And so uh, they walked away because they knew that their intentions were evil, that they were evil. And then Jesus does something. Jesus addresses the condition of this woman's heart. And I love how he turns to her. Verse 10, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So if there is a person who could have cast the first stone, it was Jesus because he was sinless. But he did not do that. He was more concerned about the condition of her heart. He didn't use his power to condemn her. But at the same time, he used his power to speak to the condition of her heart because she already knew what was going wrong within her. And so the second way that we see Jesus' power at work is this. Jesus' power is at work to address the condition of our hearts. So the religious leaders, they were so worked up. They were so worked up that they almost killed a woman, that they almost killed this woman over their how questions. How are we going to get rid of Jesus? How are we going to remain in control? How are we going to maintain our power? And so they really used their how questions to camouflage or to cover up their who question. And the real issue wasn't about their how questions. The real issue was about who is in control or the question of who is in control. And so let me say that again. The real question or the real issue wasn't about the how questions. The real issue was about the question, who is in control? Because they wanted to stay in power. They wanted to be in control. And the who question revealed the condition of their hearts, which was evil, which was selfish, and was sinful. Now, at the, at the same time, I mean, we get this, you know. This is how we use our how questions as well, you know. When we use our how questions, aren't they really to cover up the who question? Really to cover up that we want to be in control? We want to be in power? You know? Don't we fire off the how questions um, at God? And really, it's about who's in control? You know, God, how are you going to help me in my finances? How are you going to help me in my situation? And we throw out all these how questions, but really boils down to a who question. Like, God, who's in control? It's like King Ahaz last week. Are you going to be like King Ahaz who would not turn to God? Or are you going to be someone who turns to the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, who we can always turn to, who will always listen to us, who will always point us in the right direction and handle our how questions. 
And so we see this played out in this woman's situation. We see Jesus intervene in this woman's situation and save her because his power is in the details. His power is able to address the condition of our hearts. Because when we turn to him, we will see his power in his actions and in our world. So let me talk about the third observation about his power. And we're going to unpack this for the rest of the message. All right. So number three here. So let's say this together because this is so important. Number three, Jesus' power is used for the sake of others. So let me summarize what happens next, all right? So the religious leaders continue to devise plans on how to remain in control and in power. And uh, at this point, Jesus, right before this Passover, and they would celebrate it for a week uh, that was coming up in Jerusalem, does something so powerful that it forces the religious leaders to act. Uh, to get into action. So just outside Jerusalem in a small town called Bethany, um, a man who was very well known named Lazarus dies. And um, everyone knew this guy. He was friends with Jesus. Jesus was friends with him. He was so, so, had so many friends in Bethany and also in Jerusalem that it says that tons of people came out from Jerusalem to mourn uh, that Lazarus had died. And um, so they came out. So he'd been dead for four days. He's been dead for four days. And people come out for his funeral. And Jesus shows up. And he raises Lazarus back from the dead. Now, word goes out about this. I mean, it goes all over the region. It makes its way to Jerusalem and it forces the religious leaders to act. And they are hoping that Jesus will come for the Passover week because they are ready now to pounce. And so sure enough, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and they have a couple different interactions with Jesus that aren't so great. And then on Thursday night, Jesus takes his 12, his 12 closest followers, and he goes for what would become his last meal with them. And that's where we're going to be picking up for this last interaction. So picking up in John 13, 1, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. Now, here's the secret of Jesus' power. If you're wondering where the secret is in his power, here it is. It's underlined. Let's say it together. He had loved. Yeah, his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now, let's say it again, he loved them to the very end. So he got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. And so the disciples, they probably gasped at this point. They're probably like, Jesus, don't do this. I mean, you are a teacher. You shouldn't be doing this. We know it was customary. We forgot to do that for everyone else before dinner. Um, Jesus, only servants do this. Only servants do this. You don't need to do this. You are the one who was predicted by Isaiah to come as a babe in a manger. Jesus, you are the one uh, who brought light into the darkness. We saw that for three years. Jesus, you are the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You are God himself. You don't need to do something like this. And what did Jesus do? In that moment, he showed them what power is about. Then he, Jesus, began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. 
And after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I am doing? Verse 34, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So how did Jesus use his power? He used it for the sake of others. He used his love for us. I mean, only God had the authority to forgive sins. Only God could make a man walk. Only God could know the condition of a person's heart. Only God could raise somebody back to life from the dead. And only God could institute a new command. And Jesus, he used his power to institute this new command or really a new standard for his follower. He's like, let me make it really clear. If you don't understand everything that has ever been said from God, here's the one thing. And he modeled this so well. He told his disciples to love others as they had personally experienced his love for them. And I'm sure everyone in the room in that moment started to think about all the details of the time that they had spent with Jesus, that they were up close and personal with him. And they started to think of all the ways that Jesus had loved them and said with his life, I give my life to love. I give my life to love. And he probably, you know, probably said something like this. You know, Matthew was thinking of this. You know, Matthew, you remember the first time we met? You remember how your people rejected you because you were a tax collector? I mean, no one likes tax collectors. I mean, they call you a scum. I didn't call you a scum, you know, but people called you a scum. You know, Matthew, I want you to always invite everyone to follow God because that's what I did for you. I invited you to still follow me. And so as you live your life, you continue to invite people to always, everyone, to follow God because I give my life to love. John, you know, John, you remember when you brought your mama and your mama had that request about, you know, you and your brother James. James, I know you're in the room. I know you're hiding over there in a moment there. But you remember that when she came and she, you know, kind of put herself out there and said, and put you guys in front of all these 12 guys and said, hey, Jesus, when you get to heaven, would you remember to put, you know, one of my sons on your right side and one of your, my other sons on the other side? And we know, John, she was talking about you on the right side because you're so close to Jesus, you know? You remember that? John, I want you to extend forgiveness to everyone because I forgave you. You remember all the stir that that created amongst us and all the fires I had to put out, you know, and I didn't look down upon you. I forgave you. I still brought you in. You were super close to me. I want you to do the same because I give my life to love. I give my life to love. And guys, you saw in the details, you saw my love. And in my love, you saw my power. And so I want us to, I want you to love others as I have loved you because I give my life to love. Now guys, tomorrow I'm going to do something that is mind boggling. Tomorrow I'm going to do something that is so great and is my greatest act of love. Tomorrow I'm going to die on the cross for everyone's sin, to pay the cost for everyone's sin. 
so that they can come into a relationship with me if that's the, what they choose. That's why I came as a babe in a manger. That's why I made myself small enough to fit in a manger. That's why I made myself small enough to serve everyone. That's why I made myself small enough to fit on a cross because that's what a mighty God does for those he loves, for those he loves, because I give my life to love. That's what he did. And so as we enter this Christmas season, as we think about the one who's been named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's be reminded of how he is seen in the details. Let's remember these three things. First, that Jesus' power is seen in all the details of our lives. Jesus' power is at work to address the conditions of our hearts. And Jesus' power is used for the sake of others. And so the question for us today is really a who question. You know, who is in control? So are you trying to turn to the mighty one who knows the details of your life? Or are you trying to do it on your own? Are you throwing up all the, and stressing over all the how questions instead of turning to the one who's all powerful? So today, maybe, we should stop asking our how questions and turn to Jesus. Maybe you should think about all the details that are going on in your life instead of that one big thing. And in that, you'll begin to see only what God could do in those moments. And so why not turn to the one who loves us? Why not turn to the one who loves us and does these things for our sake? And so today we're going to close uh, in a prayer and a song today. And uh, during that time of prayer, would you simply say to him, you know what, God, I'm going to stop trying to control. And instead, I'm going to turn to you, the mighty God who is in control. Would you verbalize that to him? Maybe you are in the midst of some darkness. Maybe you're going through some tough things and you've been trying to have all the how questions answered and throwing those out instead of recognizing who's in control. Are you trying to be in control or are you allowing God to be in, in control in the details? And so for others of us, you know, let this be a reminder of how we are to love and to serve on a regular basis. And so would you, during this time of prayer, would you say simply, God, would you give me eyes to see and ears to hear? Because there are many people that I know, there are many people that, you know, that I have influence with, and as you have loved me, help me to love them. And so, God, would you help me? Would you help me to give my life to love? And so uh, would you bring about uh, people who are in need? 
And so maybe put a reminder on your phone, like I give my life to love. And every day you see that reminder go off each day. And when there's a person who needs help in moving um, and you're like, oh, you know, I know they're not fully packed. I don't want to go over there and help them move. You just remember that reminder, I give my life to love. And you so you say yes. Or maybe there's that person that you know needs a place to go for a meal and you're like, oh, I don't want to really do that. They're kind of odd. They're a little different. And you see that reminder, I give my life to love. Or maybe there's a person that you know you need to call them. I mean, you know you need to call them, but when you call them, it's gonna take two hours on the phone and you are so busy. But we're reminded that we give our lives to love. I mean, could you imagine if we lived out this commandment that Jesus said on the last night that he was with the disciples and for all of us to love others as he loved us and I give my life to love. Could you imagine the darkness that would be lifted, the light that would come into other people's worlds as we showed them God's love? Because he came for your sake. Because that's what a mighty God does for those he loves. And so during this time of prayer, uh, I'm going to ask that we're going to stand and close in prayer, and then we're going to sing this song. And I want us to sing this song to God as a way to say thank you for what you've done. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Would you stand with me, and we'll close in prayer. So Father, thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you that you sent your son, and you made it so clear, so clear, of who he was so that we could know exactly who he is. And Father, today, I know there's some people going through some tough things and our how questions are important. And when we turn to you, we see that you will always be there for us. You will always listen to us and you will always point us in the right direction. And so God, you are good and you are mighty. And for all of us, God, may we live our lives because you died on the cross for us. You showed us that we are to give our lives to love. That's what you did for us. So may we help those who are in darkness see you. You did so much for us when we look back in all the details of our lives. Thank you for doing that. And so we sing this song to you now as a way to say thank you and reflect on the details that you are in, mighty one. In Jesus' name, amen.